First Timothy chapter six, we're in verses the second half of verse two to verse ten. As we've talked about, there's two primary themes that run through Paul's letter to Timothy here. One of those is the need to have proper behavior in the church, but probably the more prominent one is this idea of false teaching and false teachers. And so Paul addresses that topic three different times in this letter. The first one was back in chapter 1 where Paul started his letter and entrusted Timothy with the task of putting an end to the false teaching at Ephesus. The second time he addresses the concept of false teaching was in chapter 4 where he revealed the Holy Spirit's warning claiming that followers of Jesus Christ will be led astray by false teachers. And then we come to our passage today in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is the third time that Paul now addresses the topic of false teaching. He provides us with five different insights into specifically false teachers today. So the focus will be on false teachers themselves today, and those five insights are going to revolve around the identification of false teachers, the character of false teachers, the effects of false teachers, what it leads to, the motives of false teachers, and then finally the fate of false teachers. So we're going to walk through this and digest this this morning. Now throughout the letter, Paul has charged Timothy with teaching and preaching, not just the things that Paul had taught Timothy, but in essence the things that Timothy had learned from the Old Testament Scriptures, from his mother and his grandmother. In essence, all things related to Christ... And God. And he uses this phrase, these things, throughout this letter multiple times to refer to that. I'll just run through these rather quick. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, For some men straying from these things, which is a reference to sound doctrine, all things Christ, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. In chapter 3 he says, I am writing these things to you, meaning the things from his letter, hoping to come to you before long. In chapter 4 verse 6 he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. He says in chapter 4 verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. Chapter 4 verse 15 he says, take pains with these things. So there's this phrase that Paul uses continually reminding Timothy about these things, and these things refers, again, not just to what Paul had shared in his letter with Timothy, but the core of Christian doctrine. Again, that Timothy had learned from the Old Testament, from his mother Eunice and his grandmother, or mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, but also the things that Paul had taught to him. Well, Paul uses that phrase one last time, in verse 7 of chapter 5, prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. And then he gets to this section on false teaching. And so all along he's reminded Timothy of the need to preach and to teach these things. Sound doctrine is another way to understand that. So he uses that phrase, I'm sorry, uses that phrase one last time in our passage this morning. We're going to go ahead and read the passage and then we're going to come back and go through it piece by piece. So go ahead and join me in chapter 6, verse 2. We're going to read through verse 10. He says, teach and preach these things or these principles. Very end of verse 2 there. 
If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he is or he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which rise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these things, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Mentioned we're going to look at these different character traits, if you will, of false teachers. And the first one that we see here is the identification of false teachers. How do you know a false teacher, when you see one, look at verse 2 again. Paul says, teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the doctrine conforming to godliness. So a false teacher is somebody who advocates a different doctrine, it says. Paul uses one word here that's a combination of two Greek words. One of them is different, the other one means to teach. And so it means to teach something different. Well, teach something different than what? Well, throughout this letter, Paul has been saying, preach and teach these things, these things, these things. And he says, now, if somebody teaches something different than that, he says they're a false teacher. Paul used this same phrase up in chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, instruct certain men not, not to teach strange doctrines. That's the actual word for different doctrines. Now, to help define what falls into this category of a different doctrine, Paul provides two tests for us here. First one, he says, is it doesn't agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sound words, we've seen that repeated before, sound doctrine, sound words. This is not just limited to the words that Jesus Christ spoke during his earthly ministry. The Bible refers to everything that we have written here ultimately as the words of Christ. In fact, you go to John chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, In the the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word ultimately becomes flesh. Jesus is the Word of God. When you understand, um, we studied a little bit on Christology in our systematic theology course, one of the... um, Ministries of Jesus Christ is the ministry of the Word and providing the Word to us. We're told that everything that is in here, Paul has written to 2 Timothy, is God-breathed. Jesus Christ is God. What we have here is the Word of Christ, the Word of God. And so everything that we see here can be defined as the Word of Christ. That was one of his ministries, to to reveal God the Father to us. In fact, we know that after Jesus rose from the dead, it says that he spent time with his disciples, walking them through the scriptures, teaching them everything about himself from the scriptures. And so it's a revelation of him. And so Paul says that anything that doesn't agree with the words of Christ, the things that we see here, is a false teacher. Sound words are those that agree with what's written here. The second test is that different doctrine is that which does not agree with the doctrine of godliness. If you remember a little bit earlier in verse 
5 of chapter 1, Paul says that the goal of their instruction, Timothy's and Paul's instruction, he says was this, love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. That was the purpose of his goal, or his teaching. It was to build and support godliness in those who hear it. And so one of the tests of false teaching is whether or not the doctrines that they're teaching are conforming to godliness, meaning they produce godliness, they lead to godliness, or do they lead to something else? I want you to turn to Second Timothy chapter 2, verses, uh, let me see, we're at verse 14. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. False teaching doesn't lead to godliness, it leads to something else. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 14, Remind them of these things, again, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Notice that sound doctrine is supposed to lead to godliness. Where does things that are different, things that are contrary lead to? Paul says right here, it leads to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Others translate that as cancer. Among them, and he mentions then Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. They upset the faith of some, so false teaching upsets people's faith. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness, and wickedness in that context there is likely a reference to false teaching. Abstaining from false teaching, because it leads to ungodliness. Look back at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Remember what Paul said just a few verses earlier, chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself, what? For the purpose of godliness. So by Paul encouraging Timothy to focus on sound doctrine, he says it will ultimately lead you into godliness. And so when Paul telling us how to identify false teachers, one of the things he says is, look at what they teach. Does it lead to godliness or does it produce ungodliness? That's a telltale sign of false teaching. It was interesting, I've been watching uh, the FX series on Hillsong. I've mentioned this a couple of times now. It's interesting, the timing of stuff, because I've been reading some books on um, the New Apostolic Reformation, which is um, tied to Hillsong and Bethel. It's just filled with all kinds of false teaching and stuff. And So... If you remember, Hillsong is a large church um, out of Australia. They started a, camp, a church in New York called Hillsong, New York. It was led by Pastor Carl Lentz, and he had a recent fall from grace, if you want to refer to it that way. But it's interesting because there's all these different facets I've been watching this that have fascinated me, one of which have been the number of people that they've interviewed that, had, that were a part of the church at one point that had left and what's really interesting to me about this, and it could be partly because this is the people they seek after, the people they find, but one after another of these individuals that were at one point a part of Hillsong that are now being interviewed, their faith is all over the place. And what I mean by that is, I wouldn't categorize probably 
90% of them that I've watched be interviewed as having a sound understanding of the scriptures. It's all over the map. Many of them have had to go into counseling and, and have all kinds of other issues and all kinds of stuff. And uh, Granted, there's probably a million reasons why. But what's striking to me is that by far the majority of these people are just messed up theologically. Well, they sat under the teaching of Carl Lentz for years and years who was a false teacher. And you can see the product in their own lives. And that's pretty standard. You know, false teaching can't lead to godliness. It leads to ungodliness. And that's the first, one of the first two tests. And so, are they teaching things that are contrary to the scriptures? Is a test. And are they teaching things that don't lead to godliness? Does it not produce godliness? You know, what's interesting is, one of the reasons why we teach the way that we do here is because we believe that by getting you into the Word of God, it'll produce a change in your life. If there's no change in your life over the course of time after sitting here and renew, then there's a problem. Because it's supposed to produce change. It's supposed to produce godliness. And if that doesn't happen, and unfortunately when we look around the evangelical church today, we have people that sit in some of these churches for years and they're no different ten years later than when they first started. Many of them still living in the same old patterns of sin and other things that they first walked in the door. And part of that is because of this emphasis. And just come as you are. We're not here to change you. I mean, if I heard a pastor say, come as you are, we're not here to change you, I'd say then you ought to leave. (laughs) Now granted, it's not the pastor's job to change you, but you should be changed. You should become more godly under proper teaching. And as Paul is warning Timothy and the rest of us here about false teachers, one of the ways to identify them is they don't produce godliness in those they teach. It doesn't happen. Our takeaway is that we can identify false teachers by testing what they teach. Plain and simple. We ought to be looking at, is what they're teaching contrary to what's written here? Is it producing godliness? It's not a hard test. You know, people have, over the years, I've been doing this for almost 40 years, ministry-wise, and um, been asked over and over again, how do I recognize false teaching? How do I recognize false teaching? How do I know what a good church is? You know, my daughter Kimberly is going to be going down to Ark tomorrow. We're taking her down there. She's going to have to find a good church. She's already told me, Dad, they told me they're going to provide me with a list of great churches. Okay, time to evaluate. How do we know whether it's a good church or not? The first thing I look at is, what's the teaching like? I've checked their statement of faith, but I also look at how they handle the word from the pulpit. I go and I look at sermons they do online. That's the way we test. And you know, we don't have to know all of our theology, but... You know, is he using the Bible to teach me this morning? Because if he is, there's probably a better chance that he's going to be okay. And so one of the first things we learn here is how to identify false teachers. He goes on now and he tells us about the character of false teachers. Look at chapter 6, verse just the first part of verse 4. It says, He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words right out of the bat he is conceited and understands nothing Paul describes three characteristics here if you will of false teachers the first one is that they're conceited the word literally means to be wrapped up in smoke it's used figuratively to be puffed up 
generally puffed up with pride, proud or arrogant. It was used to refer also to being silly or being stupid or absurd from a sense of one's own self-importance. They're conceited. You all know people like that, right? You might have even used that word when you think of somebody. If you were to describe somebody, he's a little conceited. He's a little full of himself, we like to say. That's the first characteristic Paul mentions here of false teachers. A hallmark of false teachers is their pride and their arrogance. They think too highly of themselves. It's one thing to be confident in our understanding of God's word. It's another thing um, to think really highly of yourself. And this is a a fine line sometimes. You know, um, uh, Dustin and I will talk about this. You know, here, Paul, we actually read this already, Paul told Timothy to be somebody who diligently studies to show himself approved in handling the word of God. Okay? There's a certain amount of confidence, I'll be real honest, that I have when it comes to handling God's word, but I also have a certain amount of humility with it, knowing that I don't know everything. And so you have this fine line sometimes of being confident in your abilities. I mean, I was educated. I've been studying the Word of God for years. Um, spend time with the languages to give me, you know, some extra abilities with the Word sometimes. To do a lot of my own work. I texted Matt and Dustin yesterday about spending a couple hours on one very simple phrase from the Apostle Paul. And I'm getting too far into the weeds on this. You know, but a lot of that helps to build confidence and how I handle the Word of God. So I'm a fairly confident individual when it comes to handling God's Word. But it's a fine line sometimes when you take that to the point of being conceited or full of yourself, especially when you don't know the Word of God. And unfortunately, there are many who are overly confident that don't really have a good handling on God's Word. And it says, Paul says right here, they're conceited and know nothing. He says they understand nothing. That's the second trait. They understand nothing. Paul's not saying here that false teachers are stupid or uneducated. In fact, some of the best false teachers are those who are educated. What I mean by that is they've got the numbers and the letters after their name. They study. They consider themselves scholars, you know. Um, They're the best false teachers. They sound smart. But they don't really understand There's a difference between knowing and understanding, is there not? I can say I know a fact, but I may not understand much about that fact. And so Paul says here they they literally understand nothing. Think about these false teachers in Ephesus. They knew a lot. They knew about myths and endless genealogies. They were well versed in those. They spent their days speculating and engaging in these endless discussions. You can imagine what those debates and discussions must have been like. They were well versed in the words of the Old Testament, we're told but they didn't understand the gospel. It was like Jesus, you know, looking at the Pharisees. They knew the words, but they didn't see Christ in it. They were well educated. Think about the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was educated in the best school, was a disciple of one of the best theologians. Paul didn't get it. He didn't understand anything until Jesus had to knock him off his horse and have a discussion with him on the road to Damascus. There's a difference between knowing and understanding. And false teachers may have an awful lot of knowledge. They may have letters after their name. They understand nothing. So many of today's, quote, Bible scholars are no different. They claim to be experts in Christianity and the Bible, but they've got very little understanding. I love to watch the History Channel. It's one of my favorite channels. And it's often interesting, whenever they have a biblical thing on there, they're going to talk about, Whatever issues, they bring on all these Bible scholars, and a lot of times it's always the same ones. One guy's got this hair that's up to about here. He's real freaky looking. But once they start talking, you realize you know nothing about the Scriptures. 
You know, they profess all this great wisdom about Jesus and about, you know, history. And, and, and they start talking and you go, wow. You know, attend a Sunday school class, dude. Because they really don't. When I was in seminary, um, we had to read a lot of stuff by scholars that we couldn't trust. And part of the reason was, it had always been, and it still is to some degree, very difficult for conservative genuine Bible scholars to get their stuff published. It's a little bit easier today than it used to be. When I was in seminary, almost all the Old Testament we had stuff we had to read just to get the historical context and other things was from, very, from people that didn't really believe it was true. But they would, you know, analyze it. And I asked one of my professors one time, I'm like, why do you have us read... In fact, I actually used the word garbage. I'm like, why do you have us read this garbage? And he's like, because it's the only stuff we can get. Because conservatives have a really hard time... Publishing stuff. Even within, you know, I told you before how much I love archaeology. There is no longer any school, conservative, seminary, or Bible college here in the United States that teaches genuine, true, biblical archaeology. And it's because that whole field is dominated by liberals, by false teachers. It's getting harder and harder in that field. Now, there are plenty of good, conservative um, scholars in that field still, but mostly getting older. It's difficult to find younger ones today. So they understand nothing. Another trait, the third trait that Paul mentions here about false teachers is they have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. The statement describes a sick or an unhealthy craving or controversial um, desire to get involved with what they call, what what the word literally means here, word battles. A battle of words. And so false teachers oftentimes have this morbid interest in such controversial things. I used to love to watch, when I'd come home from college, I would flip on some of the um, cable channels with some of these false teachers like Robert Tilton and um, some of the others. And uh, it was interesting sometimes. They all had their shtick, I called it. Their little topic that they were really interested in, you know. One dude, his was wisdom. I I remember what his face looks like. I can't remember who he was. You know, Robert Tilton's was the whole seed money thing, you know. And then there was Jimmy Swagger and some of his stuff. But they all had their little shtick, you know. They, They loved these little controversial things that were outside the norm. That's often the case with false teachers, they have their little shtick. Right now, the, the big thing, especially with this emphasis on um, NAR and the New Apostolic Reformation that seems to be infecting the church, is new revelation. It's all about new revelation now. God told me, God told me, God told me, God said this. We hear it from people like Beth Moore and others. You know, Many times you'll find these people preaching on this new revelation that God has given them. And oftentimes, it's controversial stuff. You know, um, you may not have heard about some of these things, but anybody know what grave soaking is? It's where you go lay on a grave and you soak up a former believer's anointing. You know what glory clouds are? Anybody heard of glory clouds? Something that we find at Bethel where glory clouds show up in the church and there's sparkles in this floating down from the ceiling. We now found out that there's, they seed their air conditioning systems with glitter to make it happen. Glory clouds. You know, that's controversial, right? What about time traveling? There are those within Bethel and Hillsong that believes that through prayer and other things you can alter time to some degree and put yourself back in time. 
What about waking up sleeping angels? You've heard of, have you heard the name Brian Houston? Leads up, um, leads up one of the largest NAR. Well, he's no longer. He's kind of retired from that. But um, his wife used to preach a lot on waking up angels. That angels sleep, and we have to yell and scream and shout to wake up angels. And they will often appear to you, and you can see them. You know, oh, This is all goofy stuff. But the reason I mention it is, this is all taught. You can pick up their books, you can read it, you can go to their churches and see it. It's controversial. They love this stuff, you know, it draws attention. You know, I, I'll, be real, I'll be real honest. I love preaching the boring stuff. Well, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, and what I mean by that, I'm saying that somewhat sarcastically that I, I'm not going to get up in front of you and go, oh man, I've got this amazing brand new stuff that I've just seen here and you won't believe this and it's some new revelation God gave. You know what? I'm just going to open it up and what's the next verse in the list here? We're moving on. We're going to go through it and people say, well, that's boring. I don't find it boring. I find it fascinating. But I would much rather be a boring preacher than to be teaching stuff controversial and catching your attention because it's neat and new and novel. I had a pastor friend of mine one time pull me aside and my, I'm not by any means a Hebrew scholar. We've got a better one sitting back here. But I'm well versed enough to where I can kind of hold my own. I can't sight read anymore, but I, I can analyze and I can even go to those who know more than me and look at their writings as they analyze it and I can understand what they do and I can trust them to a certain extent. Well, he came to me and he said, your Hebrew is better than mine. I've been going, working through something. It was some Old Testament passage. He said, I'm seeing something novel here and I'm not finding it anywhere. I want to know what you think about it. And he was all excited about it because in, in his words, he goes, this would preach great. So I'm like, fantastic. I pulled aside, spent a week studying it, went back to him and I said, uh, no, <laughs> there is no way you can get that from that passage. And I walked him through, we analyzed some of the Hebrew together, and he kind of went, oh, bummer. <laughs> but he was, you know, he was like, you're right, it's, it's just not there. But sometimes it's exciting to grab that new stuff, and it's somewhat controversial, you know, and it's sort of, that's often the case with false teachers. You know, God told me, and it's, I'm the only one that knows. No, you got something floating around your head. Shake it out. Get rid of it. You know, but that's they've got this morbid interest in such controversial things. So what's our takeaway? Another telltale sign of false teachers is their pride and arrogance, accompanied by their craving for such controversial things. I've already mentioned the New Apostolic Reformation and some of these teachers and leaders. And there's a lot more than you think, folks. We hear the big names. I mentioned the big names like Carl Lentz or Brian Houston or or some of the others but we have a lot of churches now that have bought into a lot of that stuff so we can tell these false teachers by their pride and arrogance and their love for these controversial things always something new always something different you know when Rob Bell published his, his book Love Wins you know it wasn't really new new but it was new to a lot of people hell doesn't really it's not a permanent place you know or whatever and um People don't live on for eternity in hell. It's sort of new and novel. You know, and people grabbed onto it. Wow, he's so profound. That's one of the first signs that we're dealing with a false teacher. What do the scriptures say? There's nothing new under the sun. It's all just recycled in many respects. But it's always repackaged to make it look new. Paul moves on to the effects now of false teachers. What effect does this have? What effects do false false teachers have on the church? Chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 6 again, starting in... Verse 4 again. He says, Out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, 
evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Do you remember what Paul wrote in chapter 1 about the goal of sound teaching? What is it? It's godliness, remember? You know, it's love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith or a genuine faith. That was his goal. What Paul describes here is the total opposite of that, isn't it? Look at some of these words. Envy. Envy is a form of jealousy that's born out of ill will towards somebody. Strife is conflict that results from rivalry and discord. He says there's slander is one of the effects of false teaching. Slander is blasphemy, speaking ill or wrongly about God or about somebody else. Remember last week we talked about you know, um, behavior and why our behavior is so important? Because if our behavior doesn't reflect Christ, it can cause the name of God to be, he says, blasphemed, spoken ill of. What was interesting about this series on Hillsong I've been watching, I mentioned the people that you know, were involved in that teaching for quite a few years and ultimately left the church. Many of them were espousing things that were not true about God, Christ, or Christianity. Why is that? Because the false teaching produced slander, blasphemy against God. Now most of these people would still consider themselves saved. And I'm not suggesting they aren't, but their, their theology is messed up. They believe things that are not true because they were under the tutelage of a false teacher. That's one of the effects. Another effect, he says, is evil suspicions. That's suspecting something of someone falsely. You know, what was really fascinating is the article, or the, the third in the four um, hour-long or hour-and-a-half-long sessions. I watched the third one last night. And it was really interesting um, because a lot of it was about how they did their Bible college and stuff in Australia and the interviewing process they went through. And one of the things that just stood out was the suspicion. Everybody was suspect, you know. And even to this day now, there's a tremendous amount of suspicion within the Hillsong and the Bethel church movements. Um, nobody trusts anybody, you know, except for the apostles and the ones at the top, you know. And so it breeds this evil suspicion, constantly suspecting. Now, it'd be great if they would turn that towards the teaching instead of just towards one another. And there's plenty there to suspect with some of the leadership. The last one he mentions here is constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. That's the ultimate result produced by false teachers. It's this idea of constant bickering or disagreement between men whose minds have been destroyed and can no longer discern the truth. I've been watching some interviews by Brian Houston. He's the one that started Well, he didn't really start Hillsong. He sort of is attributed with that in Australia. The guy's lost his mind. You can tell when you listen to him. He's deceived. He's deceptive. He's despicable. He's depraved. He doesn't understand the truth. And that's pretty typical. That's what happens with false teaching. Our takeaway from this is that false teachers are known by the fruit they produce. Plain and simple. You see things like this, slander, evil suspicions, all kinds of stuff. Listen to what Jesus said about false prophets in his day. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from their thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. In other words, 
Good teachers, sound teachers, bear good fruit. False teachers, bear bad fruit. A tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So Jesus tells us that we will know false teachers by their fruit. What is it that they produce? What's the effect of their teaching? If it's the stuff that we've seen from him listed here, we know they're false teachers. It's interesting, again, as I go back to this Hillsong stuff, you can see the fruit that they've produced has literally been devastation. People's faith has been crushed. But not only that, there's been so much that's been falsely portrayed that even many unsaved people that once looked at Hillsong as, maybe I'll check it out, now think very negatively of God because of what's happened there. And so you get that effect as well. It's been bad fruit. We really struggle with this here because about 80% of the praise and worship music comes from NAR-associated churches, Bethel and Hillstrong primarily. Some of it, word-wise, is excellent. Much of it is not. And so we do our best here to sort of, you know, do what we can. And part of my thinking on that is there are saved people within... Hillsong and Bethel churches. I know some. They love the Lord dearly. They're deceived when it comes to some of the teaching. And so there's this tension. Do we use any of that? Do we not use any of that? And and how do we balance that? It's not an easy answer all the time. But a lot of the fruit coming out of that has been very bad. It's been very damaging to the evangelical churches because many of them are now dominated by not just the music, but the teaching that comes out of that group of individuals. I mentioned a few weeks ago um, when I was in uh, seminary um, there were two very popular books by Neil Anderson. One was called The Bondage Breaker and another one called Victory Over the Darkness. He was an evangelical teacher and counselor and um, so he had written these two books. They became very popular. In fact, when I first visited Grace up here posters for Neil Anderson all over the place up at at Big Grace. Um, Very popular. Um, I read both of the books immediately had some I think it almost gave me body ticks because of the stuff that was in there and I thought wow how in the world is this stuff becoming so popular what was interesting is we began to see it on the campus the college campus at Grace and the way that I started to first see issues with it was I had my own ministry that I had started with teaching college students and so I had done Bible studies and other things and I had a number of them come to me struggling with issues And what was interesting was that many of them claimed that they had started with reading Neil Anderson's books. Many of these Christians believed they were now demon-possessed. Many of them believed in generational demons. Many of them believed that that there wasn't as much hope as what they had always thought they had had. And they were, in many respects, many of them had a lot of anxiety. Um, Some of them were having issues with um, sin just in general. And um, so I actually approached the the, um, dean and I said... This book is running rampant through our college right now. And one of the things he brought up, he said, yeah, he said, we've kind of noticed that because now our counseling center is filled with students like we have never seen before. A lot of it was sparked by Neil Anderson, what he had been writing. It was highly unbiblical. And even though he fancied himself a Christian um, counselor, much of what he was espousing was not Christian. One of the weirdest stories I read from him, he was describing this, this event where he was preaching one time and demons, while he was preaching, were biting him on the hand and he could see the bite marks in his hand. 
you know, and he was propagating stuff like that. There was a demon around every corner. And I don't say this necessarily to disparage him or to say that he was unsaved, but what he was teaching was not biblical. It came from other sources. And the fruit that he was producing, at least at the College of Grace, was not, or the Grace College, was not good. Grace College finally banned his books. Finally said, enough, we're done with this. And told the students, you can no longer read these books. Why? The fruit. And by looking at the fruit, we could see that the teaching was not good. It was false. And so another way to tell false teachers is to look at the fruit. See what they produce. Paul goes on to the motives now of false teachers. Why do they do what they do? Look at verse 5. He says there's constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And he starts with this. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So these false teachers think that godliness can be used for, and this is quite clearly in this context, financial gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So yeah, there's gain in godliness, but it has nothing to do with financial things. The godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, I'm going to stop right there. Those who want to get rich. The motives of these false teachers, what Paul is sharing with Timothy, is financial gain. That is often the case. That's not the only reason sometimes. But by far, the majority of the times, false teaching is motivated by financial things. A desire to get rich. It's a common motive. Paul says they use their false pretense of godliness as a means of financial gain. It was interesting, Katie and I were driving here this morning, and I don't think we were even talking about anything specific, but she brought up a video she had seen, was it by Kenneth Hagin? Or, it was yeah, somebody talking about Kenneth Hagin. You know who Kenneth Hagin is? He's a false teacher charlatan, three jets. And, um, but she even said, you know, he kind of looks like he's demon-possessed. Well, he is. <laughs> you know, that's my assessment. But um, she asked, you know, like, what, what, what's with that? And so we talked about the difference between false teachers sometimes, and she brought up Joel Osteen. What's the difference between him and Joel Osteen? And I said, well, with Hagen, it, I think if you were to sit him down and really get in his head, he'd probably tell you, yeah, this is all a scam. I don't think he believes any of it. It's all about financial gain for him. It's pretty clear when you look at him. Joel Osteen, on the other hand, I think is just plain deceived. Yeah, he's probably got a financial motive there too, but I think he probably really believes this stuff. Where I personally think that Hagen probably doesn't believe most of it. You know, I think he knows exactly what he's doing. He's been a charlatan from day one. That's my assessment. So in his case, he supposes that this feigning of godliness can be used for financial gain. He wants to get rich. And Paul goes on to say, but, you know, really, the teacher, and he's really talking about teachers here, they ought to be content. He says, we ought to be content We didn't bring anything into this world, so we can't take anything out of it either. You've heard the old idiom, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul, you can't take it with you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe it is, that if you build with the wrong kind of stuff, it's all going to get burned up. You don't get to take any of that with you into the afterlife. So Paul here is saying, but there are those, and again, context of false teaching, who desire to get rich. He said, but we ought to be content. When you look at a false teacher... It's easy to identify them sometimes because they're not content 
with food and covering and just being taken care of. And think about, you look just within NAR again and look at how they live. There's a guy that started, I think it's, what is the blog called? Preacher Sneakers or something along that line? Ring a bell, Matt? I don't remember the exact name of it, but he started by simply, no, he started noticing that a lot of these NAR teachers and a lot of other big megachurch pastors were wearing, what's that? Wearing pants. Yeah, very expensive. Sometimes, sometimes maybe only eight or $900 for sneakers, but oftentimes two, three, and $4,000 for sneakers. And he's like, what is going on? It's like this little cult thing. They're all shopping at the same store. It's almost like you get your megachurch pastor NAR sticker and you get a pair of sneakers with it. You know, it kind of comes with the club. Well, then he kind of expanded it out to the sweaters and the $5,000 suits and the Gucci bags and other things that are, you know, and he's like, there's something really messed up with this. Well, then people like Carl Lentz started reaching out to him privately and saying, hey, dude, you got to back off, you know? This is God's blessing in our life. And he's kind of like, yeah, I'm not so sure, you know? Our takeaway is that you can tell false teachers by what they teach, by their arrogance and pride, by the fruit they produce, and now the Bible declares here that you can know them by their motives. What is driving them? I want you to listen to what Paul actually wrote about himself in Philippians chapter 4. Ask yourself as we go through this, when was the last time you heard this from a preacher or a pastor? Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read, it's a pretty good chunk, about 10 verses or so. Jump down to verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. And in every, or and in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice that that is, that's a favorite Bible verse of people. I can do all things who, yeah, that's in the context of suffering, sometimes having enough, sometimes not having enough. That's the context of that verse. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When was the last time you heard some of these people, the real popular ones we see, that are living in the multi-million dollar mansions and the $5,000 sneakers and the $10,000 suits speak like that. The Bible doesn't demand that pastors take a bow of poverty. That's nowhere called for in the scriptures. But nowhere does it allow for people to become multi-millionaires and to live like kings off of a feigned godliness. I don't even think it holds true that real godliness should be used to develop that kind of wealth. Paul certainly didn't have that attitude. I shared a few weeks ago an article regarding how many of these 
really big mega churches now work in the United States where they have a pastor and he'll claim, I, I don't make anything, I don't get a salary, but they make millions off of book sales, which is all from their popularity. But they will all, oftentimes go to another church who then will pay them ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for a single sermon as a donation, which oftentimes isn't taxed. And what they do in return is they then invite that pastor back to their church. It's a, they refer to it as a circuit. It's all a scam. Oftentimes they even come with these massive expense accounts. When James Donald or James McDonald was pastoring Harvest, he had an expense account of over a million dollars that he could just tap for whatever he wanted. And there was almost no scrutiny on it. He's not getting paid a lot, but he's got access to all this money. That's just wrong. And unfortunately, that runs rampant within evangelical churches today. And I don't say that to disparage somebody who makes their living honestly. I think about, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Rick Warren. I'm just not a fan. I don't have a lot of negative to say about him. But, you know, I just... But, you know, one of the neat things is he gave away over 90% of his book sale money and his pastor salary. You know? Still left him with a good living. It's God's way of, I think, blessing him. But that's rare to see that in somebody. Because quite the opposite is true. They build the bigger mansion, especially when you look at NAR because it's part of a whole prosperity preaching thing. So Paul says that we can tell these false teachers by their motives too, and oftentimes there's a financial motive. I'm going to mention something here that may cause some shivers, but you've all heard of Sarah Young and Jesus Calling. Okay? Um, what's really interesting about this, it's extremely popular. Um, she, wrote, she wrote a series of books referred to Jesus Calling where she writes in the first person as if she's Jesus and they're devotional guides. She's generated almost $40 million already in, in revenue from that. But what's interesting is when you go and you look it up, I won't do it right now, but you go and you look it up, there's like 50 different versions of Jesus Calling from, you know, Jesus Calling for graduates to Jesus Calling for preteens to Jesus Calling for infants to Jesus Calling for women, for men, for engineers, for IT specialists. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And then there's the leather binding and then there's the faux leather binding. Well, then it branched into, well, she kind of ran that course with Jesus Calling. So now it's, oh, a new series, Jesus Listens. And so now the whole Jesus Listens thing is, is starting up. You know, she comes from a Presbyterian background, fairly solid church. Her husband's a pastor. But what she's teaching is false. You read her material, you clearly see it. She's a false teacher. And what is driving a lot of this right now as you look at it, it's a financial enterprise. Like I said, millions. I mean, we're talking probably well over hundreds of millions of dollars in the end because of the sales. And you release a new book and another book. Why do you do that? Why is one Jesus Calling book not enough for everyone? Is Jesus Calling differently to the pre-graduate? And different, you know, but, so you just keep producing, keep producing, keep producing. Hillsong generates over a million dollars a year in just um, sales of their music. And they talked about the need to come out with new songs and new songs and new songs to continue to generate the revenue necessary for their ministries. Is it wrong to use Christian music to make money I'm not saying that but it becomes this machine in many respects and 
So much of what's behind the false teaching is these financial motives. And we see that across the board. The very last thing Paul mentions is the fate of false teachers. The fate of false teachers. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 9 again, the second half. He says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What basically is prophesied here, what Paul is saying, is that in the end, false teachers face destruction. Paul mentioned elsewhere, they'll get theirs, as a paraphrase. They fall into temptation, a snare, harmful desires. They plunge themselves into ruin, he says, and destruction. They wander away from the faith. They pierce themselves with any grief. What's dark to me in this is that many of the people that I would look at now and say they've become false teachers didn't start that way. Didn't start that way. That's where they ended up. The same fate that Paul mentions here, and you can look this up on your own, but he talks about the fate of false teachers in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Peter talks about it, a whole chapter, chapter 2 of 2 Peter, where he talks about the fate of false teachers, and it's not good. Peter says they bring swift destruction on themselves. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. He says their destruction is not asleep. He said God will keep them under punishment for the day of, rede- day of judgment. And he says the blackest darkness has been reserved for them. The blackest darkness. God does not tolerate false teachers and ultimately they will pay the price for their false teaching so what do we do with all of this ourselves well the best way to protect ourselves from false teaching is for you to be in the word yourself to always analyze you know when when somebody recommends a book to you or when you hear somebody for the first time the very first thing you ought to be thinking is is he using the word of God to teach me and is he handling it correctly you know If there's anything that sounds controversial, you should question it. You should look at it. Look at their motives and who they are and how they live. Don't look at just their teaching, but look at, you know what? How are they living? How are they using their finances? You know, are they arrogant and proud? How do they respond when challenged? I've been challenged at different times because I stand up here and preach, right? And my goal is to be gracious and accepting and to listen and we'll sit down and we'll chew on the word together. If you see me puff up my chest with pride, you ought to go, wait a minute, that's one of the signs of a false teacher. And so all the things that Paul has given us today will help us to do that. And, you know, we live in a world today where you need to hold me accountable because I'm the one up here. But you know what? You also get teaching from other places, don't you? You maybe read, you listen to a blog, you read an article, somebody, you know, you may go to another church at times. We ought to use those same things. We ought to always have our guard up. Paul's going to end his book to Timothy telling him to guard what's been entrusted to him. Oftentimes we simply walk in, we listen, and we walk out, and it sounds good and we're okay. We ought to be listening with ears that are analyzing and looking and following, and again, asking all these questions before we allow somebody to teach us, whether it's through music, whether it's through something you're reading, whether it's a website, whatever it is, we really ought to be scrutinizing this stuff, especially because today you can't trust the label on the door. You can't trust even necessarily the background. Oh, he's from a Baptist church. You can't trust that anymore. Because our churches are filled with this stuff. And like I said, the more and more I research this, the crazier it gets. Jesus mentioned a time of apostasy. Paul has warned us that a time's going to come where we'll stack up teachers to tickle our ears. We're rapidly getting there. 
And so I think this is very timely here for us. We need to be very, very careful. And certainly, you should scrutinize Dustin and me when we're up here and Dave when he's up here, just as we scrutinize others. Amen?